really good to be back. It is some years since we've been in Seaside and we had so many happy visits uh, uh, up here over the years in the past. And then when Jeremy and Anne moved to Manchester, they kind of dragged us across to Manchester. So we left you in Seaside, which we were, we were sorry about, uh, and uh, went to Manchester for a number of years. And uh, also been going to Darlington in recent years. I'll be there, in fact, again in November, God willing. So we enjoy these trips uh, from the sunny south up to the uh, sunny north uh, and uh, uh, the beautiful countryside which we saw yesterday afternoon. But uh, more than that, beautiful church, beautiful people. It's great to be in such a, a multicultural church. Uh, it's such an international church. Uh, I don't think I can remember being in a meeting before where I was told the interpretation in tongues could be in English or it could be in Farsi or it could be in something else. Uh, you know, how do you know when it's a tongue? And yes, yeah, so it's a <laughs> well, it's great. Just uh, underlines uh, the multicultural nature of this church, which is, is thrilling, I think, and it's not going to be a million miles away from what I share actually this morning. Now, uh, what I'm going to share with you is really as a result of being here this weekend because uh, yesterday I was asked to do two sessions on the church and meetings that we had here, and some of you were, uh, I expect, here, and I, I spoke on spiritual warfare out of the book of Revelation. So I thought it would be appropriate if I continued with the theme of the church today and also continued with that theme out of the book of Revelation. Uh, so I'm going to do that by going to Revelation chapter 7, and we'll be looking through this great chapter. Now, actually, Revelation chapter 7, oh, let me just say, by the way, I think, uh, just fill in our background a bit, my wife Sue, we've been married for almost 48 years, uh, and we have uh, two sons, one's a banker, and one's a pastor, and we uh, also have uh, seven grandchildren, which we're very proud of, because although we had two sons, we actually have six granddaughters, uh, and uh, one grandson who has to bravely hold up his own, really, in our family. So we've, we've uh, ministered in the south of England, really, all the uh, years that I've been in uh, pastoral leadership. So uh, we had 24 years at Church of Christ the King in Brighton, uh, and that was Terry Virgo's base until he retired uh, from there. So I worked with Terry for many, many years uh, in a very large, flourishing uh, church, and then a few years back, uh, when I retired from Church of Christ the King, we actually moved uh, uh, to uh, Bournemouth, uh, a bit along the coast, and I'm a voluntary elder now in the uh, Citygate Church in Bournemouth, which is part of the commission sphere, uh, led by uh, uh, Guy Miller, who leads the church still in Bournemouth and oversees the commission sphere. And we work with about 50 churches in the UK, mainly in the south to southwest part of England, not exclusively so, but mainly in the south to southwest part of England. And we have particular links with India, where we're working with a growing number of churches. And also, we work into really quite tough areas of Europe, into Spain and Portugal in particular. So those are our international links. Uh, I know that uh, through Christ Central, you also have your international links, which is probably more towards Canada, uh, and I gather a bit now South America as well. So uh, different spheres do link to different parts of the world, but for us it tends to be India and uh, Portugal and Spain. Okay, let's come to Revelation chapter 7 then, which is actually a very important chapter in the book of Revelation. In fact, uh, chapter 7's in the New Testament usually are very important chapters. Uh, if, for example, you go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7, that's where Jesus speaks about rivers of living waters, which will flow from within us as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. If you go to Acts, chapter 7, you read about the first Christian martyr, and that, of course, was Stephen. If you go to Romans, chapter 7, another hugely important chapter, where Paul talks about the fact that we've died to the law and that we live in the new way of the Spirit. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you've got a very significant chapter on the subject of marriage. Uh, when you go to Ephesians, Paul only wrote six chapters, but if he had read, written Ephesians 7, it would have been absolutely fantastic. <laughs> and then if you go to Hebrews uh, chapter 7, you need Hebrews 7 to understand the book of, of Hebrews. I, 
I like to go through the book of Hebrews and teach on that because a lot of uh, teachers and preachers don't do that these days. But you can't get hold of Hebrews unless you get hold of Hebrews 7, which is about the, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Um, perhaps we can do that another time. Uh, and then if you come to Revelation chapter 7, you get this very important chapter on the security of the church, which we'll read. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali, 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from Levi, 12,000 from Issachar, 12,000 from Zebulon, 12,000 from Joseph, and 12,000 from Benjamin. That's just to show you I can read the names, all right? After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, those in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now I can scarcely think of a time in my life when this chapter couldn't be really any, any less relevant than it is today. I mean this is such an important chapter for uh, the time that we're living in. We look around the world today we see just so much stress and so much warfare and, and so much conflict and uh, uh, there's more to come I'm sure. I, the, the Middle East particularly seems so uncertain doesn't it to you sense at any time again there could be uh, rockets raining down on Israel, there could be bombs raining down on Palestine and Gaza. We know the disturbances in places like Iraq, terrible suicide bombings again there this week. Uh, I think a lot of people are not realizing this at the moment, but there's a huge conflict potential right in the South China Sea at the present time as China is building up a nuclear base where I actually uh, filling in land masses in the South China Sea and arming those land masses. And if America actually decides to really confront China there, we're going to be into a huge great world crisis. A lot of people aren't seeing that at the moment, but I prophesy it's coming. And then I think of uh, Nigeria quite often, and I think because I've got six granddaughters, I just think of those over 300 schoolgirls that were kidnapped a couple of years or so ago now, often goes through my mind and the, the growing threat apparently from Libya and then of course the, the, the terrible, I mean hellish nightmare of Syria. As you know, they say 250 people on average die every day still in Syria. I mean just appalling in that particular nation. And then of course there are challenges on the health front, aren't there? Uh, and you think we've just got through the Ebola virus in a number of countries in Africa and now there's a Zika virus that is spreading across uh, South America. I want to tell you, my friends, and I can't actually do this today, but all this stuff is in the book of Revelation. Right? It's all prophesied. I don't mean in, in specific detail, but in general terms, it's all prophesied here in the book of Revelation. 
And so it actually raises a question for us as the Christian church, I believe, in the midst of all this conflict and difficulty and suffering and warfare that we're observing in the world even now, what about the church? And the answer actually is here in chapter 7. And so this is a very important chapter for us as local churches to consider. Uh, Really what we're going to look at over these next few minutes is the security of the church in the midst of a world that is in such uh, anguish and conflict. So the first thing I'd like you to notice is about a seal. And this is covered in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 7. So the chapter begins with a vision given to John, John the Apostle who's writing the book of Revelation. He's receiving the vision, he's writing it down. And in his vision, in here in chapter 7, he sees four angels holding back four winds. And wind, of course, can cause enormous damage. Uh, It can cause damage to trees, as is specifically mentioned here. It can create great storms at sea, which is specifically mentioned here. But the winds are being held back, so you sense that there's some protection going on here because there's a holding back of the the winds from the sea and from the land and from the trees. And so there's a a picture of protection that we're being given here. And then, as the four angels hold back the four winds, another angel appears, the fifth angel. And this fifth angel holds the seal of the living God. And the fifth angel is coming from the east. Now, this is interesting, because very often, particularly... Uh, in, I think, uh, at least uh, society and culture of Great Britain, often the West is thought to be better than the East. Now, obviously, living in Teesside, you know that is a complete lie, all right? But uh, uh, you go down to London, you know, it's the West End, not the East End. The East End is the kind of poorer end, but it's the West End that people want to go to. And so you often find that it's in our culture to think of the West being actually better than the East. But I say here in Seaside, you recognise that's not true. I mean, you've even got a a, a football club like Middlesbrough, all right? So it's uh, actually doing great things here in the East at the present time. But if you come to the Bible, you'll see that very often blessing comes from the East. And so paradise is in the East. You can see that in Genesis 2. And the glory of God came to the temple from the east. And that's in Ezekiel 43. And wise men, of course, came from the east. That's in uh, Matthew chapter 2. And here, an angel comes from the east. And this angel has the seal of the living God. And this seal is placed on the 144,000. Now... Who are these 144,000? And I'm going to take the risk of uh, losing some friends at this point, Uh, but uh, the question comes up from some, is this a reference to the nation of Israel? And at first, it could seem like that, because 12 tribes of Israel are actually listed here. So it's 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel, which are listed and name. So is this a particular reference to the nation of Israel? At first sight it might look like that, but I don't think it is. Now in the New Testament you do have an in-depth discussion uh, of the nation of Israel which is given in Romans chapter 9, 10 and 11. But the book of Revelation doesn't deal really with the nation of Israel. But the book of Revelation does use Jewish symbols for the church. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2, there's a reference to the church, but in this terminology, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And we know, because of the reference to the Bride of Christ, that this is the Church of the Living God, also described as the New Jerusalem. And so the book of Revelation does use Jewish terms to describe the Church. Common sense would suggest that this figure of 144,000 is a symbolic figure 
It is not a statistic. It's a figure that has the feel of wholeness and completeness. 12,000 from 12 tribes, equaling 144,000. It's a very neat and complete figure. So what could this actually symbolise in the book of Revelation? Well, I would suggest to you that what it actually symbolises is the complete people of God, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, all caught up in this one symbolic figure of the 144,000. But we need a few verses to confirm that, and I think we can. So if you go to verse 3 here, it speaks of the 144,000 in terms of the servants of our God. And of course, all the redeemed people are the servants of our God. But if you go to chapter 14, and we were looking at this yesterday, some of us, you see it even more specifically referred to. So in chapter 14 of Revelation and verse 3, it speaks of the singing of the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So this seems to be speaking about all the redeemed people of God, symbolised in this figure of 144,000. 144,000 are those who have been redeemed from the earth. And add to that that in verse 4 of chapter 14, the 144,000 are referred to as those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And that's what the redeemed people of God do. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. So I want to suggest that what we have actually here in the 144,000 is actually a reference symbolically to all the redeemed people of God. It may be that the reference to the 12 tribes of Israel is making the point that in the end, the people of God will receive the fullness of all that was originally promised to the nation of Israel. And here, the 144,000, symbolising all the people of God, receive the seal of the living God upon their foreheads. And this refers to God's people being kept eternally safe, being preserved. The winds blow, the storms come, and right now, as we consider the church around the world, the winds are blowing on the church in many countries, and the storms are raging across churches in many parts of the world. And we have to say, well, what does this mean for the church? How is the church going to stand? But what the Scripture is telling us is that God's people are sealed. They are branded as belonging to the living God. Now, I have to say that this sealing and protection doesn't mean that in the end we're even protected from physical death, but it does mean that all the people of God, because they belong to God, are absolutely insured and assured of entry into God's eternal kingdom. The seal is upon all God's people. Now, secondly, I want you to see salvation. And uh, that runs from verses 9 to 12 of this chapter. And what John sees next is a great multitude who stand before the throne of God and before the Lamb. And this time, once again, we have to ask, who is this great multitude? Now, you may well be uh, looking at a Bible that has a heading at this point. So you've read about the 144,000, and then you may have a heading in your Bible that says the great multitude in white robes. If you've got that heading, it's unfortunate because it breaks the flow of the text. Remove the heading, you read about the 144,000, and immediately, John says, then I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count. And again, I want to suggest to you that this great multitude that no one can count is actually the complete number of the people of God. So first of all, we have the complete number of the people of God given symbolically, it's 144,000, 
but then you have the actual number of the people of God given to you, but the actual number is so great we can't even count the number. So, we're looking at the people of God, as it were, from two directions or in two ways. From the beginning of history, all God's people are sealed. They are preserved. And in the midst of all disasters and all all the storms, they will be kept eternally safe. But at the end of history, look again at all the people of God. And what you'll see is a total number beyond our ability to count them who will stand before the throne of God and of the Lamb and bring them worship. Now, we've got some very important truths there to consider them with this great multitude. So let's just run these very quickly. For one thing, as we think about the salvation of God's people, this particular scripture is telling us that a vast number of people will be saved. We're not into small numbers here. The number of God's people finally to be saved and redeemed will be so vast that in the Bible it either has to be represented symbolically as 144,000 or literally it has to be represented as too many people for us to be able to count. Now finally, there will of course be an actual number of people that are saved and redeemed. But that number will be so great that it will be far too big for you or I to be able to count it and praise the Lord for that. What it means, my friends, to you here is that more people in Teesside will be saved and more people in Teesside will be added to your church. You need to be confident of that because there's going to be this vast number of the redeemed that will be saved. Another thing that we need to notice here is that it means prophecy will be fulfilled. I love verse 9. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language. But if you go back to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, you will see that this is actually prophesied by Jesus. And so in Matthew 24 and verse 14, this is what Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, or more accurately, to all people groups, and then the end will come. So Jesus prophesies and says, this gospel will go to every people group in the world before the end of the age will come. Then you go to Revelation chapter 5 and to verse 9 and you'll see the price that is paid to redeem people from every people group. And where we read about a song in heaven where they're singing, you are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain, now note this, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus says before the end comes, the gospel will go to every people group. In the book of Revelation, we read the price of redeeming people from every people group is actually the blood of Jesus. And when you come to Revelation 7 and verse 9, John says, I looked and there before me was the great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and the Lamb. And that is the fulfilment of what is prophesied here in the New Testament. So at the end of history, there will be those from every people group that will actually be added to the eternal worshippers of God. Now, can I just add here a word of caution about this term people group, which is very popular today, especially amongst missiologists, people who are looking to see all the people groups in the world reach. What tends to happen today is that we define people groups and we define them as a people of a common culture, uh, very often of a common language and also 
quite often say that they're also self-aware that they are a particular people in a particular group. Having defined people groups in this way, it then becomes possible to number all the people groups and to say, therefore, there are all these people groups which you can then number who have not yet been reached with the gospel. Now, I want to, don't want to knock that and say that can be helpful for missiologists to actually target particular groups of people to reach out to with the gospel. But just be a bit careful because the definition that we make of people groups is not necessarily God's definition of people groups. And we just need to be a bit cautious about that. And what it means is that as long as this world remains, we must assume that there are still people groups existing who need to be reached, and therefore we are all on a mission to the ends of the earth. And in John Piper's famous statement, mission exists because worship doesn't. And until the end of the age, there will be a reaching to every people group so there may be more worshippers of Jesus in all eternity. And Jubilee Church, you are a little embryonic representation of the reaching of all people groups to multiculturally bring worship to Jesus for all eternity. And then we also need to see that joy is the expression of salvation uh, because what we have here is all the redeemed who worship before the throne of God and of the Lamb and they're waving palm branches and they're giving their cries of victory. There's a picture of unrestrained joy. All heaven joins in in verses 11 and 12. The angels stand round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures and they all fall down on their faces before the throne and all creation and all of heaven and all the redeemed are worshipping saying amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. It's a picture of unrestrained joy. Uh, the scripture tells us that even now, my friends, well before eternity that we might enter into, we can know joy unspeakable and full of glory. But before the throne of God, we'll experience the thrill and wonder of salvation with eternal joy. Let me tell you this, we are going to be so happy. <laughs> We're going to be so happy. I am not a football fan, I can be honest with you, and I, so therefore I have to work out this uh, kind of uh, joy that erupts uh, on a great football occasion. Now, I could just be kind of a bit uh, kind of negative about it all and say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't mean anything, but I recognise that if a city like Leicester has never won uh, the Premiership right through all their history, that it's an occasion of great celebration and joy. I do recognise that. And I, I recognise here up in, up in Middlesbrough, if you've got a promotion uh, to the Premier League, that there's going to be joy. It, it does bring a sense of pride to the area, doesn't it? And let me say, last year, Bournemouth got promoted to the Premiership and we have the smallest Premier uh, ground in the country. So we were very proud in Bournemouth, and I felt a little bit of the joy of that occasion. So I honestly don't want to knock the rejoicing and the joy that comes with great football success. But please, without wanting to knock that, let's remember that is, it is a passing ethereal thing. As Christians, there's going to be eternal happiness and joy as we stand as the redeemed before the throne of God. Interestingly, the biggest difference I would suggest between now and then in eternity is that we will actually be happier. And looking at some Christians, that's such good news, right? <laughs> we will be happier. But interestingly also, not more secure. Because we're sealed. Remember that. The storms may come, the winds may blow, Disasters may fall upon the earth. Persecutions might arise for the church. But my friends, we're secure. We're God's people. The living God has sealed and marked his people. There's an eternal preservation order upon our lives. So even in eternity, you will not be more secure than you are now. 
but you will be more happy. There's an old hymn that simply says this, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified saints now in heaven. In heaven, nothing will diminish our joy. And even now on earth, we can begin to express it. And then also we need to see here that salvation is all of God. That comes out in verse 10, and this multitude sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Another translation puts it like this, to God and the Lamb we owe our salvation. God saves us, and friends, that should be all of our confidence The longer I go on as a Christian, and I've been a Christian for 60 years, the more convinced I have become that if my salvation depended on me, I would have blown it to smithereens a million times. But it is to God and the Lamb that we owe our salvation. He gives it to us. He seals us. He preserves us. And before time, He foreknew us and predestined us. And in time... At some point in our lives, he effectively called us. And right now, he justifies us. And in the future, he will glorify us. And we just keep on receiving what he gives. What a gospel. And I am so certain and so secure and sure of my salvation because it is not me that's done it. And in glory, when I reach there and somebody looks me up and down, And they say to me, well, how did you get in? This is my answer. To God and to the Lamb, I owe my salvation. And that's why we'll be there. And then thirdly, I want you to notice something about shelter. We take another look towards the end of this chapter at the redeemed people of God, which is sparked by a question which is given in verse 13 and then answered in verse 14. One of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now this is obviously symbolism, talking about washing your robes in the blood of the Lamb, and... uh, the robes come out pure and white, but it's actually speaking of the effectiveness of Christ's death. That's what the symbol is about. Uh, that it's like washing our robes in the blood of the Lamb, but they come out white and pure. It's a picture of our cleansing and our redeeming and of our salvation. And here we read that God's redeemed have come out of great tribulation. It is a mistake to think of tribulation as simply an end-time event to history. It's actually a bigger mistake to think that the church will be raptured and taken away before the tribulation. Rather, there is a tribulation always for the church to go through, which will intensify towards the end. I think we need to remind ourselves as Christians living in this country and Christians living in the West that we tend too easily to judge things from where we are ourselves at the present time. And as Christians in this country, we are not under any great pressure. To be honest, the pressure is beginning to grow a bit, but compared with other parts of the world, uh, we're not under great pressure. And so it's very easy for us, if we think of tribulation, to think, oh, that will be in the future. And you even get this strange idea that we might even get out before the tribulation actually occurs. Can I say, friends, that what we see as Christianity and church life in places like America and the United Kingdom is simply not typical of so much church life around the world today. If you're in China, if you're in Sudan, if you're in Iraq, if you're in North Korea, the church is already in great tribulation. And we need to remember that. The church always gets the glory out of tribulation. And we read here that the church comes out of trouble or tribulation into shelter. That's described here in verse 15. Therefore, having come out of the tribulation, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne 
will shelter them with his presence. Saints come out of tribulation, they stand before the throne of God in the presence of God, and God spreads his tent over his people forever to shelter and protect them by his covering. And all the troubles that the church and the saints have known in the world will no longer for eternity trouble the people of God. And there's reference here to hunger, thirst, scorching heat and sadness. And you can think of these things literally. You can think of churches now in parts of the world by being scorched by persecution. But actually, churches will come out of that tribulation and persecution to be forever sheltered and protected by the presence and covering of God. Now, let me ask you a question about heaven. Do you imagine that in heaven you will have no needs or desires? What would you say to that, I wonder? Will you have any needs or will you have any desires in heaven? If you think that you will have no needs or no desires in heaven, I want to suggest that that could be rather dull and rather passive. If we have no needs or no desires, you know, will it be life at all? I want to suggest to you, and I believe this passage helps us here, surely we will have desires. Now look carefully at this passage. It says, concerning the redeemed who come into God's presence for all eternity, never again will they hunger and never again will they thirst. But then you read on the next verse, for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd and he will lead them to springs of living water. So if you are never going to hunger and you're never again going to thirst, why do we need an eternity to be led to springs of living water? I think it's going to work like this, that even in eternity, actually, we will have a hunger and a thirst for God, but it will always be satisfied because we will be led to springs of living water. And then again, we will have a desire for God and again we'll be led to the springs of living water and satisfied again. So in a sense, we will never hunger and thirst, but in another sense, we will always have desires and longings and God will fulfil every desire and every spiritual longing as he leads us to springs of living water. And this is the shelter which is promised to the people of God as we come out of great tribulation. Now, I have deliberately left aside a huge issue and I want to address this just as I close over the coming minutes. It's a huge issue that I've deliberately left out. What about right now? I'm very much projecting from the book of Revelation onto into eternity and talking about safety and security but it may be, even in this world as it is right now, you don't feel particularly safe and particularly secure. Now, is God keeping us safe right now? It's all right to talk about eternity, it's right to talk about delivered into the everlasting, but you know, is God working to keep us safe right now? So let me just say some quick things about this. I want you to understand that God is working for us continually. You can go to one of the most famous verses of Scripture, and I'm going to read it uh, in the NIV. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All of you will know this verse. And in this very famous verse, Paul says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. But most of you will actually know this verse from the old authorised version. And in the old authorised version, it puts it like this, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And I want you to notice there's a subtle difference between the NIV and the AV, authorised version. Here in the NIV, which I'm using, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. But in the old King James, or authorised version, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God. So there's a subtle difference in the translation. And the reason there's a subtle difference is this, that both translations are absolutely equally possible. It is impossible from the Greek to tell which is the absolutely right translation. So both the NIV and the Old King James AV are both as legitimate as the other. However, even if you've been reading the NIV for decades, 
I would suggest to you, if you quote this verse, you still quote it from the AV. And you say, all things work together for good. Now, please note the all things. At the present, Christians are not immune from all things. So, Christians can have accidents, no disease, disability, unemployment, can be caught up in terrorist attacks, can face death. But all things must include the good as well as the bad. So, there's good in all things as well. So, grandchildren are good. Well, most of the time, all right? But it's grandchildren, uh, or you can think of holidays, or you can think of a promotion, all right? So, Romans 8, all things, it's not all bad things, it's all things. Now, I have a problem with the way that we can sometimes too casually use the authorised version. All things work together for good. Can I say to you, I don't think willy-nilly in a random way all things do just work together for good. There are some bad things that happen to us that actually do help to build Christian character. There are some good things that happen to us that can actually ruin people and distract people. And over the years as a pastor, I have been with believers who've had to face terrible situations in their lives and I find it trite simply to trot out to them, oh, it's all right, all things work together for good. Which is why I actually favour the new international version, the translation I'm working for, uh, I'm, I'm quoting from. In all, in all things, in all things, God works for our good. I want to suggest to you, whatever we face, whatever we go through, if we love God, that God will work in the worst of situations to bring something good out of it. God works continually for his people and is doing so at the present time. I also want to suggest to you that God works mysteriously for us at the present time. Now, a year or two back, I, I read a fascinating book. It was actually lent or given to us by uh, my son, the one who's a pastor, and it was a book called Salvation on Sand Mountain, and I guarantee nobody in this congregation has read it. It was called Salvation on Sand Mountain. It is a beautifully written book. In fact, it's been mentioned in uh, many of the top literary journals in America as one of the most beautifully written books uh, in that particular year. And in this book, Salvation on Sand Mountain, the author is a journalist who decides to research snake-handling churches in southern uh, America, uh, south of the USA, not, I don't mean South America, in the USA, in the south of the USA. And uh, there are churches that you may have heard of in the south of, of America that sometimes in their worship services will introduce snakes into the worship. Uh, and uh, all this is the result of a complete misunderstanding and misinterpretation of a verse in Mark 16 about handling snakes. And they completely misunderstand it and misinterpret it. Now, I do want you to hear what I'm saying here. I am not commending this, all right, uh, that you bring snakes in, into the, the worship time. I mean, I think it's absolutely crazy. It's bonkers. I mean, you may have heard of a film called Snakes on a Plane. That's all right, but snakes in church. I mean, I think that'll be absolutely crazy. And the whole thing is out of context. But this is a, a beautifully written book. And it, it, in a sense, moves to a crisis which you anticipate that the author of this book gets so caught up in, in these churches that eventually there's a particular meeting where he actually picks up and holds a rattlesnake himself in the middle of this worship service. Now, as you read this book, one of the questions that you're asking yourself and which you have in your mind right now, if they have rattlesnakes that they're handling in the worship service, does anybody ever get bitten? And the answer is, yes, sometimes people do get bitten. So then you've got another question, which is this. Do people ever die? And the answer is yes, sometimes they do die. But the incredibly interesting thing is that mostly they don't get bitten and mostly they don't die. But again, let me underline, I'm not recommending this, but it is, it is fascinating. 
And there is some extraordinary moments described in this book where he goes into meetings and the kind of worship they have moves to a point where they begin to bring the boxes out and let the snakes out. And these rattlesnakes are, I mean, it's just not, not one of them. I mean, there's any number of them going around the floor and they're picking these snakes up and they're wrapping them around their heads and they're rolling them around their arms. And these are dangerously poisonous snakes. I mean, you think, my word, you know, this is crazy, crazy. And you're sitting there at the moment thinking, what on earth is he going on about talking about snakes in church? But I'm giving you all that background because I want to share with you one sentence from this book. And you'll see why I've given you this background. In his book, the author makes this statement. Christianity without passion, danger and mystery may not really be Christianity at all. I thought, wow, that is a statement. (laughs) Christianity without passion, danger and mystery may not really be Christianity at all. Can we really believe in and worship a saviour who's died for us and raised us to life and not be passionate about it? Isn't there something about our faith that would encourage us to take some risks, to engage with a bit of danger somewhere? And isn't it true to say that not everything can be explained by us? There are mysteries. I don't know why more people in those churches don't get bitten and why they don't die. It's a bit of a mystery. And in the Christian life, there are things that we can't explain. There are huge, huge questions. And what I want to suggest to you is that God not only works continually for us, but he works mysteriously for us at the same time. And then this also. I want to suggest that God works eternally. We are living in a dangerous world. I can't imagine what it must be like to live in a country like Israel and think that rockets might fall on you at any moment or live in the Gaza Strip and think that missiles might rain down on you at any moment. I can't imagine what it must be like uh, to have grandchildren who have been kidnapped and taken off into the, the jungle and the forest and goodness knows what has happened to them. I can't imagine what it must be like to live in the ruins of Syria and be in the middle of a country which is being bombed to smithereens day after day. And as we think about these events, and as we consider what's going on in the world, we do need to ask, what about the church? And that is what Revelation 7 is addressing. And Revelation is telling us this about the church, that we're sealed, we're preserved, we're assured of an eternal kingdom. It's telling us about salvation. Whatever the opposition, there will finally be a number so vast that will come from every people group and stand before the throne of Jesus and worship him. The number will be beyond our ability to count it. And there is shelter. Yes, the church might go through great tribulation, but the church has kind of come out of tribulation into glory and into God's presence, and in all eternity, every desire will be met. For our God is working for us continually, yes, mysteriously, but also eternally. He's building his church. The gates of death and hell will not prevail against us. Every one of the people of God, the redeemed of the Lord, will come to glory. We are the church. We do have the ultimate answers. Christ will reign. Friends, the church is forever secure. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, can we? And we will close with a song of worship in a moment or two, but uh, like like us to pray. Father, we thank you that you've caught us up into this great design and plan of yours, which is the church. And Father, we thank you that you have chosen people to communicate the gospel, not angels. And Father, we, we thank you so much that uh, in choosing us, you have chosen us to be involved and to be part of the plan.
And Lord, I thank you that you've chosen this corporate community, Jubilee Church here in Seaside, to be part of the plan that you have to reach the nation and the nations. And Father, I pray that we will get hold in the midst of conflict and war and viruses and all that's going on in the world at the present time with all the confusion and all the terrorist attacks and all the dangers. I pray, Lord God, that we might have hold of this truth, that we really are a sealed people, that we belong, that we are eternally safe. Thank you, Lord, that your purposes will be worked out, that there will be this vast multitude that will be saved. I thank you that more people will be saved here in Seaside and added to this church. And Lord, we pray, give us confidence in that. Let us pray for it. Let us witness for it. Lord, we pray, keep bringing people in to be saved in this community. Restore the backsliders. Edify the saints, I pray. And thank you, Lord, that we look for that day when we come out of tribulation into glory. And Father, we are sheltered forever by your presence and that uh, you will meet every spiritual desire that we have. Thank you that you are a God that's working for us right now. Lord, we thank you that in all things you are working for our good. And I want to to pray right now. There may be maybe some of you here who are going through bad all things and you're going through a difficult time. And actually, if, you, if you're honest about it, you can't and say, well, everything is working for my good at the present time because it doesn't look as though everything's working for your good. It looks as though unemployment or a lack of money or lack of opportunity. It doesn't look as though all those things are working for your good. But I want to say to you, God is work and he will bring good out of your situation if you love him and persevere with him. That's the promise of scripture. And we say, Lord, you're working mysteriously. There are the big questions that we can't answer. Lord, I don't even know why a snake in America doesn't keep biting people in a church building. But Father, there are bigger questions than that. And Lord, we don't have the answers to everything, but we thank you that we have enough. We thank you that we know how to be saved and how to live godly. And Father, we thank you that even if it is mysterious, you're working for us. And we thank you that you're working eternally to bring the church out of tribulation to glory. And Father, we thank you that one day we will join people of every people group. And Father, we will stand before the throne of Jesus and we will worship. And we thank you. We've got a little representation of that here now. Lord, we thank you for people from different nations joined together as one family. Thank you, Lord, that heaven will be such a social place. We'll all meet together from all the tribes, races, languages and nations and celebrate together. We thank you that we'll enjoy such fellowship. And Lord, I thank you we'll be so happy. And Father, we pray that you'll release greater happiness amongst us even now on this Pentecost Sunday. Let the joy of the Lord come down upon us, Lord God. May we be a people who rejoice with unspeakable glory uh, because we know the wonder of our salvation. Though we have not seen him, yet we know him and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We thank you, Lord, for the joy of salvation. Lord, I pray for a happy church, a secure church. And Father, a church of faith that we'll see something great happen here in Seaside as nations are gathered in to worship Jesus for the glory of your name. Amen.